We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. Uh, we are back into these particular couple of chapters. We've, we've been gone out of it for a couple of weeks. Stephen preached for us um, in the end of Romans 9 into Romans 10, a two-week series on that. And so we're coming back in. I'm going to pray and then give us some bearings on what we're doing here in Matthew 25. But you can, if you want to, go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, 25. We'll be at verses 1 through 13. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for um, the gift that we have to be able to gather together as a church body. We know that there's many Christians all over the world that don't have um, this privilege, this gift, and so I pray that we wouldn't take this for granted, but that we would be here um, joyfully and being grateful. I pray for us all, Lord, with so many things going on in our lives. We all have busy, busy lives. Some of it we can't help and some of us obviously we can, but um, for these next few moments, I pray for us all that we would be able to take away out of our minds all the responsibilities. Um, They'll certainly be waiting for us afterwards, but instead, Lord, um, thinking about and worrying or um, not focusing, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that want to focus in on your word this morning, focus in on what you have to say to us this morning through your word. Lord, if you would grant that, we would be incredibly grateful. Lord, if you would grant that, it certainly heightens my responsibility this morning, my anticipation this morning, but also, Lord, causes me to fervently pray even more greater. Please speak through me mightily. Please give me clarity of mind and thought. God, please help me Handle your word correctly. Fill us all with the Spirit right now and give us ears to hear and leading by the Spirit. Anyone here that doesn't know you, God, would you um, cause them to be born again? Would you bring them to life spiritually? Pray that you would do it through your word. And more than anything, Father, as we leave, as we go, having heard your word later, I pray, God, that We will respond accordingly. Come now, Lord. We beg of you, come now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, and so I want to get us all on the same page. Um, Got some good news and maybe some bad news. I think it's all, you know, good news. But um, the good news is uh, that... Um, and this is kind of the same thing. The good news is that we are going to be doing the same thing that we've been kind of doing. Uh, we've been looking at Matthew 24 and 25. So if you've been here, it's going to be information that you've heard. The bad news is you could be thinking, it's information I've heard already. I, this is all the same thing. But back to the good news, we haven't heard it for three weeks. So if you're like me, you've totally forgot everything that we've been talking about. And so um, it's all going to sound brand new to you today. So we're going to be... Um, looking at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And so just to give us all a, a, a kind of an understanding of where we are and what we're doing, um, just in case you've been here or if you haven't been here, um, we've been going through, like I said, the book of Matthew, and we've been taking kind of a few chapters at a time, piece by piece. And so right now we're looking at chapters 24 and 25 together, and we've kind of subtitled each little uh, section of, of, of chapters. And this 24 and 25 is called Coming King. And so uh, what's going on here, if you look at 24 verse 3, it says, 
Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him. The the whole impetus or the whole catalyst of chapters 24 and 25 um, begins with this particular question. The reason why these two chapters, 24 and 25, are written um, are because of this one question that the disciples asked Jesus in in verse 3 where they said, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the end of the age. So basically, the disciples come and say, hey Jesus, you just said that the temple is going to be destroyed and you're saying that you're going to come again could you just help us understand what those two things are going to look like and so over 24 and 25 what he does is in the very first of 24 up until verse 42 he gives them kind of a timeline of what uh the future ending end times events are going to look like and then after he gets to verse 42 uh starting at verse 42 he's got some parables that he's going to teach and these parables the point of these parables is to say okay I've told you the timeline I've told you what it's going to look like at the end of time now these parables are going to tell you as a Christian what your life should look like um in response to the timeline in response to my second coming what it's going to look like these parables are teaching mechanisms to help you understand what should my life look like in light of that the way the end times are going to shake down so um what we have done um, a couple weeks ago is we looked at the first two parables. Uh, we started at 42, uh, 25, 24, 42, and you can see there at 42 through 44 was kind of that first little parable. Um, it was smaller, and these parables are kind of growing their size, and as they're growing their size, they all kind of have the same idea. And the second parable we looked at was in 45 through 51, and today we're going to exclusively just be looking at parable 3. It's right here in 25, 1 through 13. And the big idea of this parable is to kind of highlight for us what's been going on, do some teaching, and help us all understand, okay, if this is what the end times are going to look like, then how is it that we're supposed to live? Um, and similar with all parables, the, the point of all parables usually comes at the very end. And it's no different here. You can see the point right there at verse 13. Uh, the whole point he kind of summarizes where he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. So the whole point of this parable right there in verse 13 is, Watch, be ready. Make sure that you are ready for the second coming of Christ. Now, um, what we're going to do today then is, is unpack this little parable. And as we're unpacking it, there's kind of four key pieces that is inside the parable that Jesus is giving us, that Jesus is telling us, um, that helps us understand what our being prepared should look like. There's four kind of key pieces of information that he wants us to know. So we're going to start at verse 1, and as we're going through it, uh, take a look at what these, uh, these four key pieces of information should look like for preparedness. One of the other key verses in this particular parable is verse 5. The reason why he tells them in verse 13 to make sure that they are watching and, and, and being ready is in verse 5. You can see right there, as the bridegroom was delayed. The bridegroom was delayed. So there's, there's a delay in his coming. And because of the delay... Um, there's an absolute necessity for them to be ready. So just to kind of help you all put yourselves in this little story and understand what's going on, it's this. Um, Christ, if you're a believer, has saved you. And when he saves you, he doesn't say, okay, you're saved, go to heaven. <laughs> like, it, it would be wonderful if that were the case. We wouldn't have to live in the sinful world. We wouldn't have to struggle with sin and yada, yada. But that's not what happens. He, he saves us and everybody thus far 
um, has, and it could be that it comes tomorrow. It could be that the second coming comes tomorrow, but it could be that he's also delayed. Um, we're all going to live in this pattern, where, or this, this point of life where when we're saved, the second coming of Christ is delayed. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It says that up in 24, I think it's 43, but it hasn't come yet. And so we all have to live now our lives day by day, day going to work, taking care of our kids, going to the grocery store or whatever, because the, the bridegroom has delayed. Jesus' second coming hasn't happened. And so since it hasn't happened yet, we're all in this place of life where, what am I supposed to do then? Well, what I'm supposed to do is verse 13, watch and be prepared. So as we're going through this particular parable, we're going to see four pieces on what that preparedness looks like. What are some, some key pieces of information that need to inform me to help me to understand then what, how should I live in light of this delayed second coming and this command to be watchful and be ready. All right, so verse one, um, just a second, I, I got to read verse one. I'm going to give us some understandings of, of weddings back then and weddings today and how they're different. But you can see in verse one, it says, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So we're thinking, okay, this is interesting. How is this working? You've got uh, a bridegroom that's coming to, to a bride, and then you've got the 10 virgins, and more than likely it just means bridesmaids, uh, the 10 bridesmaids that are going out somewhere probably in the woods, and they're waiting for this bridegroom to come, this, this groom to come. Um, that's not how it works in our, in, our, in our day. So what I want to do, because when the first century hearers heard this parable, they were following Jesus right down to, okay, okay, that's right, gotcha, gotcha. And so they're following. But we're not going to, because our weddings are so different. So let, let me, before we jump in, give us a little bit of difference between their weddings and ours, just so we can, we can track with them just like the first century uh, people were. So here's the difference of, of what's going on and how they're able to follow. Unlike today, today the, the bride is the central figure of the wedding. If you've ever been to weddings, they, you know, everybody has to walk down the aisle really fast so that when she walks, it's really slow. And we're all like, okay, yeah, she's the most important one. And we all have to keep our shoulders like wherever she is in the room. We have to, maybe that's not you, but that's how I've heard. You always got to like, she's the most important person. She walks down last. She walks down the slowest. We all stand when she walks in. Whenever, it's, it's all about the bride, you know. Um, and you've heard this in weddings, perhaps, uh, we're, was in a wedding a couple weeks ago. Um, have some more this year. It's, it's exciting time, and in our in our culture, it's all about the bride. However, in first century, it was not all about the bride. As a matter of fact, it was the complete opposite. In the first century, the, the wedding is all about the groom, which I think is a good idea. I, I really like it. I think it should be that way. Um, I don't know what we're doing and how we've evolved into this madness now. Where, I'm just kidding. So it's all about the groom. And so the groom is the central figure of weddings back then. So let's just spiritually relate that. It means Jesus is the central figure, right? The church's wedding to our, our groom, Jesus, Jesus is the central figure. So the whole thing is all about Jesus. And so as he's telling them this, um, they all understand, oh yeah, wedding's all about the groom. It's all about him. Um, and so they can relate it to, oh yeah, everything's about Jesus. And so, um, so here's how it would work. They, theirs were a little bit different uh, back then as well. So in the first century, they didn't have smartphones to entertain them or computers or the internets or whatever. So they, had, they didn't have TV and ESPN and, you know, it's National Potato Day and tomorrow's National, you know, whatever day. And it's a, it wasn't a holiday every day. And so they needed things to do. They were, otherwise, they were killing animals and making food and trying to keep their, their cloaks clean. So that, that was day to day. And they, could we have something to do? So when a wedding came, they're like, oh, yes, a wedding. This is going to last a few days. So we have something to do over the next couple of days. And then it's just 
back to killing animals. And, and so, so it was rather boring compared to what we would think it was boring. They would probably not have any idea because they don't know what an iPhone is. But anyway, um, so back then, um, weddings didn't just kind of happen in 30 minutes, get it out of here, the food's warm, we need to get them so they can eat, so we need to have this wedding done. Instead, weddings lasted a really, really long time. They lasted a few days, major celebration, everybody was invited, they all took part of this, of this enormous kind of celebration. So here's what the way it would happen, is the groom would leave his house with his friends um, sometime probably late at night, um, and they would, he would come over to the bride's house. And as he came over to the bride's house, there would be waiting for him uh, the bridesmaids. Um, the bridesmaids would be kind of out sitting vigil with their lamps, just like in this, this um, parable, waiting for him. And whenever he came in, their job was to take the groom back to the bride. That was, that was, and this was a big deal. Um, they, would, they would greet him and take him back to the bride. And then the ceremony would happen at her house. And then after the ceremony would happen at her house, then everybody would go out into the streets and then a huge, large procession um, would happen. It was, everybody had to bring their own torch. It was BYOT, bring your own torch. And they would have this big, they have this big torch and they would walk back to the, to the uh, husband's house where he had gotten everything ready before he come. He had got all the party set and everything was ready. And then there would be this huge processional. He and his bride would go back to his house and there would be a big party for a few days that he would put on because now he's the man, he's the central figure of the whole deal. And so uh, a big party would happen and they would actually have something to do um, you know, for, for a couple days. That was, that was the way uh, a wedding would happen. And so here we are diving into the parable where we see the, the 10 bridesmaids, as it's, they're calling them 10 virgins, the 10 bridesmaids. Basically what Jesus is trying to help us see is that these are 10 unmarried bridesmaids that deeply, deeply, deeply desire marriage. They're they're not old hags. They're not, you know, living on the high life, trying to live out their days and, and, and do whatever, and they'll get married eventually, whatever. They, they are women that want to be married desperately. This is generally, whenever these, these bridesmaids were, were chosen, they were ones that were like, I hope I'm next. I want to be next. We're taking you back to her, and I want to be one of those that's next. They deeply, deeply desired marriage. Can we just see the spiritual, spiritual implications here? Okay? Um, we're talking about those that um, on the surface we would say these particular people want to be saved they they want to know God they want to be uh, walking with God they want to be a part of the church and so you've got people that are saved and generally you've got the other two categories the the pagan or the irreligious the the ones who say I don't care about God I don't want to know God I want to live my life of debauchery I'm not talking about those. We're talking about those who are Christians. That's, that's half of them. And you have this other half who aren't Christians, but want to, in some way, live a life that looks like they follow God. Very prevalent in today's Southern culture, right? Everybody's a Christian because you're from South Carolina, right? Because uh, my parents go to church. Um, and so that, that's the kind of idea. And so, but there's a second category. There's those that are Christians and those that want to be part of the bridesmaids. They, they want to be saved by Jesus. But instead of faith in Christ, they're depending on their own works. They're depending on what they do for, in order to be saved. So here we have... Ten, as it says, ten virgins who go out with their lamps to meet the bridegroom. And then you can see right here in verse 2, right here in verse 2, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. This word wise, phronemos, phronemos. Um, 
intelligent, prudent, wise. And when the Bible speaks of these, um, these kind of two comparisons of people, wise versus foolish, we're not talking about just, you know, those who go to MIT and those who end up not graduating from whatever, you know what I'm saying? So, like, we're not talking about in, as far as, like, people who seem to be smart or not smart. Instead, there's a spiritual aspect that's put into always when we have these wise and foolish. So this phronemos, this wise, is talking about people who are spiritually wise, spiritually intelligent, spiritually prudent versus those who are spiritually foolish. Jesus has already given us a great illustration of this um, back in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, starting at verse 24, um, here's, here's an illustration he uses comparing this uh, wise versus unwise, wise versus foolish. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. So the one who hears Jesus's words and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. He's, he's immediately going spiritual when he starts talking about wise people. He builds his house on the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then you've got the comparison. Um, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. He doesn't build his house on the rock, but instead he builds it on the sand. It says the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house. Both of them experienced trials. Um, Christians are not exempt from trials by any means. Uh, and then it says, and it fell, and it was a great fall. So we have already for us an illustration in Matthew 7 of this wise versus foolish. And we're not talking about intellect. Um, we're talking about spiritually wise versus spiritually foolish. Now, let's keep reading, and then I want to point out some interesting things here in verses 1 through 4. It says, five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. Five of the bridesmaids foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So these lamps were probably fit in the hand, their job is to go meet the, bride's, the bridegroom whenever he comes. So we need a lamp because when he comes, our job is to guide him back to, with our lamp, back to the bride. So th- the whole point of their job is to have a lamp that works. That's the whole point of their job. Remember, this is a parable, so there's, there's always little things. Well, what about, you know, so don't worry about those things. The whole point of their job is to have a lamp that works. Five of them say, hmm, he might not come right away. So I'm going to take some extra just in case I'm there for a while. The other five aren't prepared, and just, let's go. And they just go. Um, and then we see in verse, where are we, four? Um, but the wise flask of oil with their lamp, verse five, and as the bridegroom was delayed. So that's the, we'll stop there to try to um, get some bearings on what's going on here. I want to I wanna show you the striking similarities between these 10 bridegrooms bridesmaids. I'm going to mess this up, but just, you know what I mean. These five ladies, these ten ladies. Um, <laughs> I'm all over the place, but I want you to notice the striking similarities between these two groups of five. All right, first, all were invited. You can, let's just think about the spiritual implications we're, t- we're going here. We're not talking about the pagans, okay? We're talking about those who are part of the church. Some are, are Christians, and some think they're Christians. That, that's the whole point of what we're being invited into today. The whole invitation today is to think about whether I'm part of the church or whether I'm just fooled and think I'm part of the church. All are invited. Not only are they invited, all respond 
positively to the invitation. I'm invited. I want to go. All are seemingly part of the visible church. This is a parable talking about people who look like they're part of the church. When we look at all them, they're all there. They're all sitting here, part of it. If you're here, you think, well, visibly, you're part of the church. Another striking similarity is also they all have some kind of interest in the bridegroom. There would be no reason for them to be there if they weren't interested in this bridegroom coming. Spiritually, they all have some kind of interest in Jesus. They wouldn't be part of the church if they didn't have some kind of interest in the church. Um, Also, they have all called Jesus curios, Lord, Lord, you can see it right there in verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're, they're calling him Lord. They're using even the vernacular, the correct language that would happen in a church. There's so many similarities between these two groups of five. They all believe in the second coming or they all believe that this bridegroom's coming. Not only do they believe in it, they're in some sense waiting for it. The difference is in the waiting. Some came prepared. This is the only difference in the parable. And some didn't come prepared. That's it. Spurgeon looks at this and he says, on their similarities, they were all virgins. They all took their lamps and they all went forth to meet the bridegroom. They all made a profession of attachment to him of some sense, um, which led them to separate themselves from their companions and acquaintances that they would go out there, that they might go forth to meet him on the wedding night. So, strikingly, a whole lot of similarities between these two. But there's one difference, and this one difference calls them, uh, puts them in the two categories of foolish and wise. And the one difference is that um, one of them brings oil and the other one doesn't. So before we get to that one difference, let's just think about this. Because of all these similarities, external similarities, the first thing that we can see that must be absolutely true, the first key piece of this parable, is that externals are not the true issue. They all look alike on the outside. And we all might look alike here in the church the same. We might even all call Jesus Lord with our mouths. Externals, when it comes to being a true bridesmaid, a true follower of Jesus, a part of the true church, not just part of the visible church. Externals are not the, tr- the key issue. You may go to community group every week. You may give money. But if you think that it's because of those things that God's happy with you, or because of those things that you have right standing, then that's not it. So, Externals are not the true issue. Therefore, the true issue is the heart. And so we we can ask ourselves, what caused, in this parable, what caused five to be prepared and what caused five to be seemingly not prepared or maybe even uncaring? And I think it's the heart. Yeah, that's my job. I'll go out there, whatever. Let's grab the thing. Here we are. They look just like everybody else, but they weren't prepared. They didn't think there's a possible delay. And because of that possible delay and Christ's coming, he's not going to save me right whenever I'm, I meet Christ. There might be a delay. There's something that is absolutely necessary regarding this waiting time. Something must be done by me in order that I would be true and not be called foolish, but I would be someone who's called wise. So 
let's look at it. Again, in verse 3 through 5, you can see, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, but as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Um, verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So we're going to come back to that in just a second. But basically, he finally does come after the delay. He finally does come at midnight. Um, here he is. Let's go. He's here. Then everybody arose and trimmed their lamps. It just means basically they got them all ready and ready to shine as bright as possibly as they could. And one of the things about needing it to shine bright is you need oil. And so um, they got it to shine as bright as they possibly could and ate. And the foolish said to the wise, um, they, they got them to shine bright. And when they got them to shine bright, they ran out and they looked over at those that had some. So the foolish said to the wise, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Nine says, but the wise answered saying, since um, since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather, you should go to the dealers and buy it for yourself. We're going to come back to that as well. I know that sounds kind of selfish. Um, and then it says, <clears throat> verse 10, and while they were going to buy, um, he's about to come, he's about to come. Hey, we need oil. Let's get it shine bright. We don't have any oil. Oh no, let's go buy some. And while they're out buying some, it says in verse 10, um, the bridegroom came while they were out and those who were ready, those five that were ready, they took him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. The other five are out at Walmart shopping for oil, right? Walking through the aisles looking for... Anyway, um, so here we see that there's a problem. There's a problem in regard to these two, five, these two groups of five. <clears throat> some were prepared and some weren't. So here's the second key piece that we need to be thinking about in regarding to our uh, need to be prepared, be watchful, as it says in verse 13. There's a necessity of preparation for perseverance. Because when you're saved, you do live the rest of your life here on earth unless Christ comes. But he may be delayed and he has been thus far. There's an absolute necessity for you to persevere. It's not optional. Christ is calling every single one of us to persevere in the faith. Without oil, your light will eventually burn out. Similarly, without perseverance, your light for Christ will burn out. You have to have, um, you have to have a desire and you must be persevering in the faith. You must be persevering in the faith. So this means that they were here, these, these five foolish, they were unwilling to do what was necessary to persevere through the night. They could have brought more, but they didn't. They chose not to be the kind who have prepared themselves to persevere. They didn't do what was necessary. And Jesus gives us an illustration back in Matthew 13 of these kinds of people in his parable of the soils. This is what he says in Matthew 13. Um, you can see it in Matthew 13, 5. This is the rocky ground people. It says, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up and since they had no depth of soil when the sun rose they were scorched and since they had no root they withered away. And he explains that parable or that, that description over in verse 20 when he says as for what was sown on rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet has no root in himself while he endures for a while when tribulation or persecution rises on account of the word he immediately falls away. So he's already given us a description of these, these kinds of people. They don't make the necessary preparations to be the kind of person that is going to persevere in the faith. 
They're unwilling to do so. So let's, let's ask the application question then. What does perseverance look like in your life? What does it mean for you to have this oil? You know, you're supposed to have the oil in your life so it doesn't burn out. Better stated, what does perseverance look like in your life? How are you doing at persevering? There's, persevering means, among a lot of things, there's no taking breaks from God for a while. I'm just going to take a break from God for a little while, do whatever I want for the next fill-in-the-blank time period. This is ludicrous. This is insane language. We don't take breaks from God. This is not willing to do what's necessary. Um, Instead, there must be, and this is so key, continual present trust in God. Persevering means that I have continual present trust in God, that he has already taken all the punishment for me. His death, bill, and resurrection was my death, and all of his righteousness has been imported or imputed or given to me because of my faith. Therefore, right now, I am not dependent upon these good works for salvation. Whenever I, I go to heaven, I wouldn't say, well, I believed in you, and then after I believed in you, God, what I did was, da, 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 da. Therefore, I should be right with you. We're not, we're not depending on, for our right standing with God, the things we did. And that's what these people were. They were religious. They looked just like everyone else, but they weren't depending on present trust in Christ. He's going to come. They weren't presently trusting. Also, I think what um, perseverance looks like is it must be unwavering, this trust. Whenever trials come, our faith cannot be fickle. It can't be fickle. There's a writer, Andrew Fuller. He says, a man has only as much religion, and this was used in the positive sense back, back in the day, this a couple hundred years ago or so. A man has only much, as much religion as he can command in trial. In other words, when the trial comes, as much as he has control, that's as much as he's going to have um, religion. And maybe a better way to say it is, is William Taylor. In the 19th century, William Taylor says it this way. Nothing will more correctly reveal what is in a man than the coming upon him of some crushing and unlooked-for crisis. You want to know what's in the heart of a man? Let Let the crushing tribulation come. And it's going to. And every single one of our lives, it's going to happen. It's going to be easier or harder, depending on what measure the sovereignty of God decides. But you want to know what's in a man, watch when the trial comes. Because in the easy times, it's so amidst the whole book of Job. Ah, everything's fine for him. When, when the trial comes, we'll know what's in a man. And when this happens, when this trial comes, perseverance calls us then to have active trust in Christ. So back to the question then, just to circle back to it for you. What does perseverance look like in your life? What does it look like? What would making sure that you're living a life of perseverance in the faith look like? Present trust in Christ is what I think. Um, In verse 8, it says, The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps. Our lamps are going out. Spurgeon looks at this and he says, It is worse to have a lamp that has gone out than to have never had have a lamp at all. Those putting off their repentance to their dying hour are like the foolish virgins. Their folly has reached its utmost height. Its utmost height. Verse 9 is the curious part where I was talking about. It says, 
And then after it says that, they give us your oil. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And you're thinking, wait a second, aren't Christians supposed to be, you know, selfless, giving? These are some stingy, stingy bridesmaids. I mean, I've met some stingy bridesmaids, right? These are quite stingy. Why are they so stingy? Um, it's a parable. Remember, it's a parable. So the point is not, in the end, don't be stingy. That's not the point. Um, to put it, if you, if you take it out of the, uh, the parable and, and put it into the real life uh, context, this is what's basically going on. Um, there, it's not, the, the point of it is not don't be stingy. The point that Jesus is trying to make is being prepared. D.A. Carson explains it for us. Praise God for D.A. Carson. It says, the wise virgins cannot help them. They cannot help them. In other words, that is the foresight of the wise virgins, the preparedness of the wise virgins cannot benefit the foolish virgins whenever the eschatological crisis dawns. When the second coming of Christ happens, um, that's it. It's over. And so he's saying preparedness, present trust in Christ, and having belief in Jesus that, that his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross saves you, that belief in the end, can't be transferred. You can't say, well, I have present trust. I have my oil here. Believe in Jesus now that it's all over. You can't share it. And that's, that's why they're not being stingy in the parable is because present trust in Christ, being prepared and i.e. believing in Christ um, cannot be transferred or shared. So let's make sure we understand this. In other words, you can share before that with people how to be saved. You can share your faith. Trust in Jesus Turn from your sin and repent. Live a life that gives glory to God, showing he's your highest treasure. You can share that, but you can't actually take your actual salvation and like pull out up some of it and say, well, that's still enough to save. Hold some of that and stick it in your chest and that'll save you too. That's, that's what they're asking him, them in a sense when they're saying, give me your oil, give me your oil. Save me from this is what they're saying. Um, they must trust Christ for themselves. So here we again see as point number two tells us, that we must have, um, there's a necessity of preparation for perseverance. We must be persevering in the faith, actively trusting in Christ ourselves. Now, back over to verse six. I want to highlight something for us in verse six. Um, You could say, hey, Fudd, this shouldn't be a point, Um, but I think it should. So we can argue over that later. Um, But I think that this is something that is good for us to remind ourselves with. Verse six says, but at midnight, there was a cry here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now, um, just a reminder for us all, because we have electricity and um, ESPN, and so midnight actually for them was really late. I know for all of you, you're like making your pot of coffee to stay up late at midnight, or you know, maybe I am sometimes too. I'm not telling. But uh, midnight is no big deal for us to stay up to. But back in the day, normal people, God made it day and night. So when the sun comes up, they're supposed to get up. And when the sun goes down, they're supposed to go to bed. So like midnight for them was actually late. For you, it's probably not late. You're like, whatever, I'm up to like 4 a.m. I'm an iron man or an iron woman. I get, get up at six. I sleep for two hours and that's all I need. Um, but whatever. But for them, midnight meant really, really, really late. So take your mind out of the way we live. So when they hear in verse six, when it says, but at midnight, there was a cry. So you've got them, they're sitting vigil, they're, they're waiting. He's, as verse five says, they're delayed. It says in verse five that they all go to sleep. They get drowsy, they go to sleep, which is no big deal. Um, 
some commentators are going crazy about them going to sleep. How could they not sleep? You're supposed to be awake. Oh, woe to the Christians who are drowsy for Christ coming. Um, the wise ones who are called wise go to sleep. So I don't think there's any big deal about going to sleep. God wants you to sleep. Um, this is a side note for free. Uh, God actually makes you sleep for one third of your life. He keeps you asleep for one third of your life. Just, and, and he keeps the world going just to help us all remember that he doesn't need you to do anything. He's in control. The world still spins. And he wants you to sleep just to show you how weak you are and that he's in control um, and that you would be more dependent upon him. That's why you sleep a third of your life or maybe some of y'all a half of your life. But anyway, back to it. Um, so uh, here they are. They're, they're waiting. They get drowsy. It's midnight, which means really late. And eschatological terms or end times terms, the midnight means the whole human history has finally come to its close. All of it's at the end. Midnight is signifying that, that um, the end times has happened and Christ, it, Christ is coming now at the second coming. The bridegroom's coming and it says he's about to come. So they wake up um, and they're freaking out like, oh, we don't have enough oil on and on Walmart, etc. So the whole point of what I want to make in point three is still there in verse six where it says, but at midnight there was a cry and here it is. This is, this is the... The second half of six, we need to latch on and cling to. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The reason why I think this is significant, this is the third key piece, is this. The definite, the definite, it's not maybe, it's not perhaps, the definite eventual coming of Jesus. Without warning, we know that from the thief in the night. But here's why I think this should be a point and it should be in there, is... We should not kid ourselves and, and think that Jesus isn't coming just because we haven't seen it. And just because it's not part of our experience yet in our life. We are so easily fooled because we haven't seen it to say, well, I haven't seen it. It must not be happening or it's going to happen. Way. I believe it, but kind of maybe I don't. So I'm just going to go do whatever I want. We must live in light of this. There can't be... Um, there can't be, a, uh, in our minds, a taking for granting of this coming just because it hasn't happened yet and you don't think of it much. Verse 6 says, there will be a moment where there's a declaration of, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. That simple phrase means worlds and worlds in the way you live. It has so many implications of your life right now. He is coming. He's delayed, and he's not coming yet, and you haven't experienced it. Don't take it for granted. Don't act like it it's not going to happen just because you haven't seen it. His definite coming demands from us a certain kind of perseverance in the faith. It demands from us. So the reason why I put that there as our third point is just so that we can... Be encouraged by its coming, because some of us are like, Maranatha, come right now. <laughs> oh my goodness, you see what's ahead of me in my future. Please just make it all go away right now. Or, life is so easy, I don't even think about the second coming of Jesus. I don't really know that I live like it. I don't live in light of it. The danger is, if you're living like that, you're one of the five foolish virgins out there. And you're going to be stuck in Walmart at the checkout aisle. And the door is going to be shut in your face. That's what this parable is telling us. It's screaming for us 
to check our heart and realize that externals are not the issue, but our heart is. We're going to come to that as we conclude, but you can see here in verse 6, it is absolutely, absolutely coming. And then we have verse 10, we're going to pick up. They're asking for the oil. They don't have any. They've got to go buy some. And it says in verse 10, And while they were going to buy their oil, the bridegroom did come. And those who were ready, they went to the marriage feast, and they, they went inside. And then it says, The door was shut. So the other five, the foolish bridesmaids, are shut out. And it says in verse 11, Afterward, the other virgins, or the, the five foolish ones, it says they came, and they also were saying, Look at him, they're calling him Lord. Lord, Lord, open to us, verse 12. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. This sounds just like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. If you remember whenever we were going through the Sermon on the Mount two years ago or whatever, um, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 this, this is almost identical language to that. So I want to make sure that we are looking at, at this because it's such similar language in the same exact book. There's no question at all that Matthew is trying to help us, Jesus is trying to help us remember what I think, I think are the three scariest verses in the entire Bible. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Um, and before we jump into 21 through 20 of Matthew 7, we, we need to realize that this is people coming to stand before Christ and these particular people, in their minds, absolutely, without any question, really believe that they are followers of Christ. And whenever they hear the information that they are not, it completely takes them by surprise. It completely takes them by surprise. They weren't kind of halfway expecting it. It astounds them that they're not being invited in and that the door is being shut. And it's usually almost the exact same language as Matthew 25. Look at 21. And listen, the point of this is for every single one of us to take stock of our hearts. Look what it says in 21. Not everyone who says to me, look at this, Lord, Lord, the exact same language of of verse number uh, 11. Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We can just use the parable language and say the one who perseveres. On that day, on the final judgment, many will say to me, we have to feel the weight of that word many. Don't breathe by that. Let that break your heart. That there are many people who believe to be themselves to be Christians who will not be. And, and so we don't in righteous indignation rise up and say, ha ha, I told you you're one of me. Instead, we, our hearts are broken. No, Lord, many so many of the people that I know in my neighborhood and maybe even in my church and in my job think that they follow you. And on that day, many will hear. Like Paul in Romans 9, 1, our hearts should be broken for that. 9, 1, 2. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at this. Did we not prophesy in your name? They are doing things that people in the church They're doing things that these 10 particular bridesmaids that deeply desire the marriage, they're doing things on the externals that look just like people in the church. They're going to the community groups. They're tithing their money. They're, as he says, prophesying in your name, casting out demons in your name, doing mighty works in your name. Externals are not the key issue here. They really honestly believe that they are in Christ. And they're saying, look at all the stuff I've done. 
and not what Christ has done. And look what he says in 23. Then I will declare to them, it's going to make it plain to them, I never knew you. Just like verse 12 in 25, chapter 25. I do not know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We, on our side, say workers of lawlessness. They're church folk. Why are they being called such sinners? Because we're all sinners. And the only thing that makes you righteous is Christ. So when we read that, please don't miss this. This is, this is so important. When we read that and we see that in 25, it's pointing us over to 7. The, when we read 7, every single one of us in this room needs to do two things. Number one, and it's not the second one. Every single one of us, including myself, wants to jump to the second one. Don't jump to the second one. The first one is, look at your own heart. That particular verse is not for you to think, oh, I know those legalists. I, I, know, I, I know. You don't do that. The point of that is for you to look at your own heart and say, Jesus, am I dependent on anything else? Anything else right now than your righteousness for my salvation? Those people in that moment honestly believe that they're Christians. Just like if you're in Christ, you do. So we have to stop and say, am I fooling myself? Now, we don't stay there. It's not meant to scare the the hell out of you so that you think, well, I don't want to go to hell. You don't stay there. Instead, you realize, I don't rely on things I've done. I only trust Christ. So we have to do this first work. Ask ourselves, am I one of these people who are depending on works? And repent if that's the case. Come to know Christ. I mean, one of the beautiful things about Luke 15, the older brother... We always think about the younger brother who laid with the pigs. It's the older brother where he's out there pouting because he doesn't have a goat. And he's, the father comes out to him. What does he say, older brother? What's the matter with you? Get it together. No, it says that it literally says in Luke 15, um, I can't remember the verse. He walks out there and he says, he entreats him. He begs him. He implores him. He pleads with him. Come. The grace of Christ is not just covering your younger brother's sinful debauchery. It's covering your thoughts that say your good works. You can repent of your good works and come to Christ. The grace of Christ is all inclusive of the irreligious and the religious. And he implores him. He pleads with him to come. And so whenever you think of this, is that me? You don't say, oh, no, it's not me. I'm freaking out. Instead, God is entreating you, pleading with you to trust Christ alone. And as we think of that, then we think of the people around us who are doing the same thing. And we don't yell at them and tell them, how can you not see this? I'm so much smarter than you. <laughs> how can you not? Instead, we lovingly and graciously, especially in this particular Southern culture where everybody's a Christian because grandma grew up in such and such church. We go to them and we say, don't trust just the fact that you go to church as reason to say you're saved faith in christ is what saves you should go to church you should be in community group you should give money you should you know fill in the blank cast out demons in jesus name that's not a bad thing it's not like i don't want to do those things (laughs) but instead you need to trust in christ alone for your salvation so the point of 10 verses 12 here where he says truly i do not know you truly i do not know you And then he 
puts down the parable book, closes up the book, and he looks right at the disciples in verse 13. The story's over, and he's going to tell them in verse 13 the whole point of what he just said. He looks at him and he says, watch, therefore. Therefore, based on everything I've said, watch, be prepared, be on the lookout, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the bridegroom's coming. Story time's over. Implication for your life. Watch. Because, and here's the fourth key thing, fourth key piece. There is, without a doubt, a definite separation from Jesus in heaven for the foolish. And likewise, we should put this on here, a definite eventual bringing together or coming together or reconciliation for the wise, for those who trust Christ with Christ in heaven. It's definite. It's not under question. It's not to be beleaguered, will it happen or not? It's definite. The door will be shut to those who don't trust Christ and the door will be opened and invited in for those who do. D.A. Carson looks at this, these others, these five, uh, these five foolish, and he says, when they say, Lord, Lord, open to us, this is not them really wanting salvation now, This is them thinking that they were saved, but it's too late. Open the door to us. Aren't we saved? It's not, we want to be saved now. It's them thinking they are, and they're not. He says, the refusal to recognize or admit the foolish virgins must not be construed as calloused rejection of their lifelong desire to enter the kingdom. We shouldn't think that Jesus is saying, no, I'm calloused. I'm not going to let you in. You've wanted to come in your whole life, but I'm just not letting you in because I'm being mean. We shouldn't think of it as that way. Far from it. Instead, he says, it is the rejection of those despite appearances that have never made preparation for the coming of the kingdom. They have lived selfishly their entire life. Lackadaisical and lazy. Oh, it's coming. Grab something. Whatever with the rest. Hopefully I can get in. And there's an absolute necessity called for these people to persevere and be in the faith. The non-entrance to heaven comes as a surprise, but it shouldn't. Because they never, ever persevered. So the question for us all then, before us is, are you one of the wise? Are you one of the foolish? You can examine your heart and you can look and ask, which one am I? And if you are one of the foolish, it's Luke 15, 28. The Father is entreating you. He's pleading with you. He's imploring you to trust Christ. I want to close with a Spurgeon quote as he's commenting on this particular set of verses um, he gives us what is one of the best summations of what is necessary in the life of a person what is necessary this is this is so beautiful a great change has to be wrought in you a great change has to be wrought in you far beyond any power of yours to accomplish so that you can go with christ to the marriage. A great change has to be wrought. Well, that presents a problem because it says far beyond any power of yours to accomplish. But the good news is that Christ is very strong and mighty to save. 
And then he says this, you must first, here it is, this is all the work of God for what he would do for you if you would trust him. It's not do more. Instead, this is what happens. You must first of all be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. For those that are believers, listen to what is true of you and just bask in the glory that Christ has been gracious to do this. You must be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. You must be washed from your sins or you you will not be ready. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness and you must put on his wedding dress or you will not be ready. You must be reconciled to God and you must be made like God or you will not be ready. Or when we come to the parable before us, you must have a lamp and that lamp must be fed with heavenly oil and it must continue to burn brightly or we would say persevere or you will not be ready. No child of darkness can go into that place of light. You must be brought out of nature's darkness into God's marvelous light, or else you will not be ready to go with Christ to the marriage and be forever with him. And the, the beautiful news is, faith in Christ What he has done for us on the cross accomplishes the renewing of your nature, the washing away of your sins, justifying you and giving you Christ's righteousness, reconciling you to God, and in a sense, one day, making you to be like him in your glorified body for his glory and not for you. Just imagine that. That that is the definite eventuality of every believer. Unbelievable. And so he's telling us right now who are out here waiting in the woods. He's coming. He's coming to ask our hearts and say externals are not the key issue here. Where's your heart? Is there in you perseverance in the faith? He puts it there. I know that but it's from present trust in Christ and not what you're doing. And if that's happening, if that's truly happening, then the Ephesians 2.10s, there's these good works that he has prepared for you that you may walk in them, will be happening in your life. You will be doing amazing things for Christ and those things are not saving you. Instead, they're giving evidence of what has already happened in your life. They're giving evidence of the salvation that's there. So if you don't see those things, That gives you pause for sure. And the beautiful thing is this. The great gospel call that he extended in Matthew 11 is the same thing that he's extending to you right now. I'm loving Matthew. I'm just loving it. My favorite book maybe. This is what he's telling you right now. As we're waiting in the woods, persevering in the faith, trusting him, examining our hearts to not be foolish but be wise. And if we realize we are, this is what he tells you. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. You are depending on works. Come to me and I will give you rest. These works are causing you to work and work and be tired. And that is not salvation. Come to me and I will give you this shalom, this, this rest of God. The peace of God will re- finally reside on you and rest on your life. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing Savior. As Romans 5, 8 says that even though we are enemies of Him, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, worshiping the devil, he says to us, we're enemies. We, we want nothing to do with him. He holds up this and he says, you can kick against me all you want. You can be my enemy. You, you worship that one who is against me completely, but I'm holding out this great gospel call and saying, come. That is such an amazing savior. That's someone that I want to worship. That's someone that I will give my life for. That's someone I will go to the battle for. Forever. And great will be the reward in the end. When we sit at the great banquet of the Lamb. The feast where we eat flavors we've never eaten before. And we drink the wine with our Savior. And have a feast that we have been invited in to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, what a day that will be. His coming is going to happen. So let's consider our hearts. Let's repent. Let's trust him. And let's give him the glory. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to worship, I pray, Spirit, that you would come mightily, that you would do the work in our hearts which is necessary. God, that if we're not persevering in the faith and we know that, we are so self-focused that you would break that, we would repent and we would trust you and give our lives over. You are a Savior that can be trusted. You are a Savior that is worth giving our lives to. I pray that we would do that. Our whole life would be worshiped to you, given unto you, gratefulness to you for what you've done. Though the body they may kill, your truth abideth still. We want to be with you, Christ. I pray whether trials come in our hearts or not, that we would be unwavering in our perseverance for you. And we know that that only comes from you, so grant that to us, Father. Be with us now as we worship. Be with us now as we repent. Be with us now as we confess. Be with us now as we turn our hearts and minds and thoughts wholly to Jesus and respond in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.